if you're not sure who I am, my name is Andrew, and I'm one of the leaders here at West Village. And this morning, it's my privilege to be walking through the Word of God with you through the Bible. Uh, if you don't have one of these, we have a bunch over here, and you can always just download one for free from the App Store. So super easy to get, but we actually do believe that this is God's word to us, and so it's so important that we're in it regularly. And so if you don't have one, please, please, please take one with you. Uh, again, if you are new with us, we have been going through this incredibly long journey through a book that only has 28 chapters. We started back in March, and we're now on chapter 6. <laughs> but today, I am going through four verses. I know, not just a onesie, a fourzie. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, we're really excited to be going through the book of Matthew. It's, it's one of four books that deal with the life and teachings of Jesus. And in particular, we're in probably the most common, most well-known teaching of Jesus, maybe besides John 3.16. And, uh, and that is actually John who says that, not Jesus. But it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Many of us have heard it. And uh, just prior to this, what's been going on is Jesus has been going around uh, the region of Judea and Galilee, and he's been uh, preaching this message saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And essentially what he's doing is he's inviting people to understand that in and through him, God's kingdom is inbreaking into their world, and he is inviting them to come and join with him, to turn from their rebellion, from their, their ways that are against God, and come and join him. And so the Sermon on the Mount is him gathering these people who respond and then going through and teaching them what life in his kingdom actually looks like, what the type of people, the citizens of his kingdom, are actually to be like. And in particular, right in the very center of this sermon, Jesus takes a step back and he starts to teach on prayer. Um, and so we've been walking through that over the last several weeks. Prayer is a pretty interesting thing. Um, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, but every single person, you know, maybe not every single person, but almost every single person in most cultures, a prayer is a significant part of their life. And it's, it's something typical. We, we often will send out that SOS in times of trouble. Uh, it might just be because it's Christmas time, uh, but I don't, I don't know if, if, if you're a Lego fan, like, if you're a Lego fan out there, anyone? Come on, really? Like, five people? Okay, this is, you guys all don't have imaginations, this is why you watch so much TV, it's because you didn't play Lego when you were young. <laughs> no, uh, when I was growing up, and uh, when my nephews are around, I, uh, I liked to play with Lego, and... Uh, and so I remember these moments when there would be a set that I wanted to build and, I, you know, something broke and all the pieces got mixed in with the rest of my pieces. And so I'd pull out the instructions, I'd spread out all my stuff on the floor, and I'd start searching around and get to the point where I couldn't find a specific piece for my Lego set. And I have these panic moments where I was like, I'm not going to find it. And I, I don't know about you, and this, this may sound like completely childish, but I would just start to pray. I was like, God, please help me find this, please. And it was almost like this mantra, right? Like, God, please help me find it. Please help me find it. Please help. I didn't do any Hail Marys, but I did help me find my Lego piece a bunch. And so uh, I think the reality is, is you know, that's, that's maybe a little bit of a childish example, but uh, most people have these moments where life just gets a little bit too big for them. And they, they throw out this SOS message to whichever passing deity, the universe, the ancestors, or if you're Tom Cruise, some weird alien Scientology race that they think might answer them. 
But the reality is when we talk about prayer as a conversation with our creator, I think when we're being really honest, a lot of us, maybe most of us, maybe even all of us, find that a challenge, find it a struggle, find it difficult to see it as a two-way conversation. And it's interesting is the reason for this. You go to the very beginning, the very first, two, uh, first book of the Bible, it's called Genesis, and, and the very first two chapters describe this beautiful moment where God comes and he creates a perfect world. He creates as a pinnacle men and women, and it says that God literally walks daily with them in the garden, and they talk together. Now, just imagine for me what that would look like. The God who created the entire world comes down for uh, you know, talk and chat. You're walking through the garden, and remember, this is all new. You're like a kid. You, you don't know what anything's called. You know, hey, God, what's that plant called? And God, in his grace, like, invites you into this moment of, like, ruling with him and being part of his creative, uh, his creative prowess. And, hey, Adam, what would you like to see it called? And, and you just get this beautiful moment where this immense, vast person you, you can't even scratch the surface of it. you got complete and utter direct access. You can ask him anything, and you experience the beauty and the richness of his heart. And you get to understand the depth of his love for his creation. Like, what would it look like if that was our prayer? What would it look like? What would it feel like if prayer was like that? Sadly, that idyllic description is, is not long-lasting. In the very next chapter, chapter 3 of Genesis, it describes how these first two humans, Adam and Eve, are tempted by the serpent to, to disbelieve God's goodness. And they choose to rebel. He has one thing that he asks them to do, and they choose to rebel against that one thing, trust, not trusting him, believing that he's somehow trying to hold back goodness from them. And that creates a rift in their relationship. It creates a rift in their communication. Our struggle in prayer is Genesis 3. It's that recognition that there is a brokenness in our relationship with God, that it's a struggle. We don't yet to have those daily encounters with him. And so it's such a beautiful reality that Jesus comes in the very center of his teaching. He invites us back to the garden. He invites us back to the walk and talk with our Heavenly Father. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open them up to Matthew chapter 6. And I'm just going to review really quickly where we've gone so far. So, so Jesus tells his disciples, this is how you pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And the first thing that, that we were reminded of is that Jesus invites us not into a relationship with sort of a landlord-tenant mentality where it's, you know, this kind of mutually beneficial, I do this, you do that for me, but into a relationship with God as our Father. To recognize that this isn't primarily about getting something, but about being with someone. Someone who loves us, who gives himself to us. But it is also an invitation to understand that we can't create our image of God as Father, that he has actually given us a picture of what he is like in Jesus. 
And so the very next clause is we're to pray that God's name be hallowed, that everyone understand the character, the richness, the glory, the set-apartness of God. And then he says that we are to pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so often our prayers start with our laundry list of things that we want, but Jesus invites us to understand that prayer is not primarily about us, but primarily about us understanding the heart and will of God. And so he invites us to pray that God's will be done, that God's kingdom come, that we approach God as God. And last week, Chris walked us through the next line. Jesus invites us to pray, give us today our daily bread. Again, an invitation to dependency, an invitation to every day recognizing that everything we have, both in terms of our spiritual care and our physical needs, must come from Jesus, must come from God as our Father. And so uh, we're going to continue on now. We're we're actually going to finish off the the Lord's Prayer. So the very next line says this, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. When you hear that word forgiveness, I'm not sure what you think of. The first thing that comes to mind, and again, this might just be because it's Christmas season, so I'm getting all this like nostalgia coming on, but I think about uh, my relationship with my brothers growing up, and I don't know how many of you have siblings, but for me, I have three brothers, and we fought a lot. My mom's here, so she can testify to that. Uh, but we fought all the time. And, and the way my family dynamic worked is like, you know, we, my parents would break us up, and we'd probably get sent to our rooms, and then you would have to come back together and, like, work it out. And so, you know, I'm over here, and, you know, kind of like, like, yeah, he called me a name, so I beat him up, so he kind of deserved it. And, you know, so then the parents say, okay, what do you say to the other person? I'm sorry. But the person who was hurt, they're not off the hook. Because you know, if you don't say the next magic words, I mean, you're going back to your room. Or you're going to spank if, uh, no, I'm not going to make that joke. That's a bad one. <laughs> uh, you're going back to your room. And, uh, <laughs> and so you go, I forgive you. Right? And it's kind of that pat answer. Uh, but, but in all seriousness, as I started to think through, what, what does forgiveness mean? I thought of an even deeper example. I remember a few years back, I heard this story about a, um, a family, and, and their son was murdered. Uh, he was killed. And, uh, and that family went to court and watched the, the murder of their son get convicted, go to prison. And, uh, and they ended up getting to know him, building a relationship, and coming to a point where they could say, I forgive you, embracing him, and actually going on to take him in as one of their own. I don't know about you, but that would kill me. That would be so, so, so difficult. It would be costly. And I think that's a a beautiful picture of what forgiveness is like. But the reality is, is our culture isn't actually so big into forgiveness. More often than not, the message that we give is one of tolerance. Probably most of you are familiar with that word, tolerance. You know, that kind of sweep things under the rug, that let bygones be bygones, let 
put on the smile and pretend that everything's all right, while underneath you're just kind of bearing it deep until it comes out in really unhealthy ways in Reddit forums and anonymous Twitter posts and quiet conversations with your friends in your living room who you think you can trust until they also bash you on Twitter or Facebook. <laughs> yeah, our, our culture is very much a culture of tolerance, but the reality is that tolerance is insufficient and it's chiefly insufficient because it doesn't deal with the cost. So it's interesting to me that the way that Jesus describes our sin is in economic terms. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Unless we, lest we think that Jesus is is being a little bit ambiguous, and we can kind of read something else into it besides that he's talking about our sin. He makes it very clear in verses 14 and 15, right after he commentates on this very specific verse, and he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That word trespass essentially means to be violated, to to have someone do something against you, to be harmed, to have someone sin against you. Tolerance just doesn't cover the cost, but forgiveness does. Just imagine if if I had $100 and I lent it to you, and you lost it, couldn't pay me back, who ultimately loses money if I choose to forgive your debt? It's not you. You never had the $100. It was my $100. And so in that moment, for me to forgive you, I must bear the cost. I must take on the loss. And so Jesus invites us not into a prayer of tolerance, not into a prayer of God, help me deal with this person long enough that I can just put up with them and we can go our separate ways. Not, God, help me stick together with my spouse for a few more years until the kids are old enough and then we can move into different places. God, not help me to put up with this person in my community group who I can't stand for the two hours a week that I see them. God, help me to love this person at work, or at least tolerate them, put up with them, even though they annoy the heck out of me for the four or five hours a day that I see them. No, God invites us, Jesus invites us to pray for forgiveness. One of the things that you might be asking yourself as you read this, is, is Jesus saying that our forgiveness is conditional? I mean, it, all, it pretty much seems like that, right? Uh, he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It, it seems like Jesus is saying that we have to do something to get God's forgiveness. And, and I don't know about you, but I mean, I've grown up in the church, and I know Paul says something about, like, you know, grace being free. I mean, I I don't know, maybe Jesus didn't read the rest of the Bible because there's like a whole lot about how our works can't do anything. And it seems to me like he's trying to say that our works can. 
But if we read a little bit further, in about five years, we'll get to Matthew chapter 18. <laughs> and, uh, and Jesus tells a story, and I think it helps us understand exactly what he's saying here. It's called the parable of the unmerciful servant. And I'm not going to read it for you. I'll, I'll just paraphrase it quickly. There's this king, and he comes to power, and he decides to reconcile all of his debts. So he calls up everyone who owes him anything and says, okay, it's time to pay up. And this one particular servant comes, and he owns, he owes an extraneous amount. And, I mean, the, the amount, if you actually do research into it, uh, is like 10,000 talents. And, and just to give you some perspective, uh, the entire, like, province in the Roman Empire of of Judea was only supposed to come up with 600 talents a year, the entire province. So you can imagine the extreme amount 10,000 talents represents. It's, it's something that the servant could not have hoped to pay off in a thousand lifetimes. And the king by rights could say, okay, well, I'm going to recoup what I can. So you're getting sold, your family's getting sold, your property's getting seized, all that's getting sold to recoup what I can from this. And the servant knows this, and so he throws himself at the feet of the king. He says, please, have mercy. And the king looks down at him and says, okay, okay. I will forgive your debt. If that were you, how would you feel? What would be your response? What would be going on inside? I think of... uh, the Christmas Carol, right? Scrooge has these, these moments where he gets to see the richness of relationship. And he, he gets to see that he gets a second chance. And you see this transformation that takes place. He's a completely, utterly changed person. Not so this servant. He goes out and he finds a, a second servant, a fellow servant. And uh, this servant does owe him a large sum of money. It's about three months' wages. And I don't know about you, but three months' wages is a lot. I mean, it's a lot to survive off of. And so uh, he demands that this second servant give him the money. And the second servant does the same thing that he did before the king. Please forgive me. Give me more time. I will pay it back, I promise. But instead of extending the mercy that he has experienced from the king to this fellow servant... He instead has him thrown in prison. And when the king finds out, he calls this servant and tells him, man, you wicked servant, how could you have done this when you had been forgiven such an incredibly large debt? Now, because you haven't understood what has happened to you, you're going to prison until you can pay it back. When we look at this, it may on the surface seem like Jesus is giving us conditions. And maybe for some of us, we even kind of want that. Maybe not in this particular passage, we wouldn't say, well, forgiveness equals forgiveness. But, but, but the way that we function is, is that we actually do want to try and pay our own debt, pay our own way. There's a lot of different ways that we try and do this. I mean, even as a society, uh, think about this past year alone, all the apologies that have come out on a national level, all the annulments, all the forgivenesses, all the money that's gone out. What is that all trying to do? Uh, It's targeted at people who have historically been 
uh, oppressed or disenfranchised in our culture. And it's sort of a, a way to try and pay it off, pay that debt. And the reality is that we cannot pay that debt off. We can work and work and work, but these historical wrongs, the cycles of hurt and pain that have been fostered because of our historical wrongs cannot be so easily paid off with simple words. Unless we miss the reality that this is also something we do ourselves, we find all these different kinds of ways that we try and pay our debts, or we pretend that they don't even exist. I mean, someone does something to you, calls you something, and then you feel justified in what you do back, right? You, know, you don't know what he did to me. And you don't know what I put up with. In those moments, what we're saying is that the debt I owe, it's no debt. It's no debt. And so we, we pretend it doesn't exist. Or, or we do the opposite, where we spend our entire life trying to pay it off. And we get buried in shame and guilt and hurt and frustration. We isolate ourselves because these are things that we can never, ever hope to repay. But we try and we try and we try and we try. When I, was, uh, when I first moved to, um, to Victoria, I had a, a co-worker uh, who was a brewmaster and... He was uh, telling me a little bit of his story, and he told me, man, like, when I was growing up, I had this dad who he just didn't ever approve of me. Like, he basically told me I'd amount to nothing. And then he went on to show how his entire life was this work, this desire to try and accomplish something. That was him trying to pay this debt, this brokenness, work hard, so that he could become someone or something. But here's the reality. In, in this prayer, Jesus invites us to understand that we cannot pay the debt. And so this is not so much a prayer inviting us to, to say that there are conditions around our forgiveness, but rather a chance for us to see the beauty and the reality of God's grace in our lives. Because we're invited first to pray, forgive us our debts. The whole Sermon on the Mount starts with this phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize they are spiritually in need. How can we not forgive someone else when we recognize the immense amount of grace that God has given us. And the reality is I believe that the reason that Jesus tells us first to go to him in prayer, to pray to the Father, forgive us our debts, is because daily we need this reminder of the things that God has forgiven us of. I mean, think about it. Even this morning, how, how many people have kids? Lots, lots of us, right? I don't have kids, but I will in like five days or something like that, so I'll be with you. <laughs> I will bet you of your morning, you know, you had to get your kids out of bed, get them dressed, get them fed, get them in the car and try and make it for 10-ish. There's probably some things that you need to repent of. There's probably some things that you need forgiveness of. 
uh, for myself. I can take stock of my morning. There are moments that I need to repent of. And that's just in the morning, on a Sunday morning. But Jesus invites us to daily go to the Father and take stock of his grace in our lives by asking him to forgive us, by going through the things that we have done just in that day. And imagine for me how that can change you. Every single day you're going and being like, man, God has been so good to me. And then you go and you start to think, okay, here's all these people who have done something towards me. How does that change your perspective? As I was just thinking through this passage, praying through it, um, I thought of this example, and, uh, and I didn't really want to share it today because I used a portion of this example a few weeks back to kind of illustrate something God was teaching me there. And I don't like bringing stuff up after I've been like, oh, yeah, God's taught me this thing, and then having to come back and say, yeah, I'm still sucking at it. But that's exactly what's happening. So you may remember if you were here uh, maybe like a month and a half ago, I told a story about one of our tenants. And uh, this tenant um, came, into, came to us through a, a mutual friend, and, uh, and he let us know that he was trying to get into some subsidized housing, so he didn't want to sign a lease. And so we agreed that we would put a clause in the lease so that if he got into subsidized housing, that he could leave uh, without any kind of severe penalties. And, and a couple months later, uh, no, like, as far as we know, did not get into housing of any kind, just decided he, he's going to ditch us. And, and we just felt hurt. We felt like he had kind of just left us high and dry. And... Uh, and yeah, I mean, the Spirit's been working in, in our hearts, but, but I realized in this moment that I have simply been tolerating him. And when he's around, I avoid him. And I just kind of, I even told my wife Shannon the other day, I was like, I just can't wait till he's gone. But just imagine if this was how God dealt with us. Just imagine if this was Jesus' attitude. There would be no cross. There would be no forgiveness. There would be no grace. There would be just the subtle waiting for us to destroy ourselves. God invites us in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount to understand our need for his grace and then to take a litmus test of have we really got it? And if we can look and see people in our lives that we have not yet forgiven. And I submit to you that you and I have not yet understand the full grace that we received from Jesus. So Jesus invites us, invites us to pray, forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And I think the reason that there is commentary after this particular verse, and many scholars have, have stated this, is that Jesus wants to highlight this is, this is the, sort of the centerpiece of this prayer, this, this reality of what it means to be poor in spirit. And we talked about that. The, the Lord's Prayer is the center of the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is sort of the center of Matthew's Gospel. And we can say that this particular line is sort of the centerfold of the entire Sermon on the Mount, because here's the reality. We've learned that it's the poor in spirit people, the people who recognize their true dependency. We've learned that 
the righteousness that we have must surpass the scribes and the Pharisees. We've learned that even the righteous good things that we do, if done from the wrong heart motives, are wicked, are wrong, are rebellious. And in the very midst of our prayer, we throw ourselves the grace of Jesus on a daily basis and then allow that to shape us so that we can then extend that grace to others. How many of you regularly take time to just pray and and ask God, show me, show me the things that you have forgiven. Show me the areas of brokenness in my life. Show me the sins that I'm not even aware of today so that I might understand your grace more fully. The final line of the Sermon on the Mount, the way that Jesus chooses to conclude, not the Sermon on the Mount, but the Lord's Prayer, the way that Jesus chooses to conclude his prayer is this. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay, so again, I'm like, Jesus, I don't know, like, does God lead us into temptation? Like, is, is Jesus here saying that God tempts us? I don't want to give like sort of an easy answer, but, but I would submit to you that that word tempted actually has two meanings. And, and so I would say there's a yes and a no aspect to that. The, the word can either mean tested, which is this idea of refining, right? That you press on something, you add pressure so that it can become stronger, more resilient. But then there's also this notion of temptation as in, I want this person to fail, to fall, to go and do something wrong. And Jesus' brother, James, actually comments on this. In the first chapter of his, his, his letter, he says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we know that this is not what God does. It is not God's desire, it is not God's way to tempt us to do evil. His heart is not for us to fail or to fall. But right before this, James does teaches that God does allow testing. So he says in verse 2, chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You may remember that word perfect back from Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus in verse 48 says, therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we, we understand that God does actually use these moments of trial and testing for our good and his glory. Right before this, uh, this passage, uh, right before the Sermon on the Mount and a couple chapters, uh, in chapter 4, we actually read how Jesus went through this, this similar process. And so you may remember, Jesus is actually led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit and says he's led to be tempted by Satan. So again, we see that Satan is the perpetrator of temptation, but God 
leads Jesus to this place, again, for his good and God's glory. And you may remember what happens. Jesus goes through this time of trial and temptation. Satan brings up all of these things, and yet God says, uh, Jesus says, no, like, I will only worship God. No, I will only follow God. No, I will only submit myself to God. What's so interesting is, is this almost, uh, in just imagery, kind of parallels that situation we talked about right at the beginning, uh, Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Again, Satan comes to them, and, and he tempts them. He tempts them the same way that he tempted Jesus, by twisting who God says, what God said and who God is. But unlike Jesus, Adam and Eve failed. They didn't trust God. And the reality is, is every single person from every single time and every period of history has done the same thing. You do it, and I do it on a daily basis. We are not Jesus. We fail the test. And so in this moment, when we're called to pray, lead us not into temptation, this isn't us dictating to God what he should do. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who we've often quoted as we've gone through this, uh, puts it explicitly. He says, but though it does not mean that we are to dictate to God, it does mean that we may request of him, if it be in accordance with his holy will, he should not lead us into positions where we can be easily tempted and where we are liable to fall. This is a prayer of a poor in spirit person who knows that our, we are frail, knows that we are weak, knows that we cannot resist temptation. So the very last thing we do, the very last cry we are invited to make is deliver us. Deliver us from evil. Some scholars and translators try and translate that word evil as evil one, but the problem with that is it doesn't encompass what Jesus has in mind here as he invites us to pray. It doesn't encompass this reality of evil. You know, for sure, Satan is a part of that. We believe in evil spiritual forces, but there is also evil deep within us or natural evils in the world. We, we see it all over the place, right? I mean, we can think of big examples. It's evil that there are nations that are going obese where there are people who are starving. It's evil that a child is born with AIDS because of something that was either done to or done by their parents. It's evil that racism exists. It's evil that kids are getting sexually abused. And Christmas, the very time where we're supposed to celebrate the goodness of Jesus, often turns into a showcase of the evil that lives deep inside of us. How many of you are going to go and do a family dinner with people that you secretly hate? Maybe hate's too strong, but you strongly dislike. And, you know, you probably got to drink a little bit more than you should just to put up with them. Now, the reality is, is that evil is everywhere. And so when we are crying out, deliver us from evil, we're not just crying out, deliver us from external evils, but deliver us from the evil that is within. There are a couple different ways that we actually try 
that our culture tries to advocate for dealing with evil. And so I call them the, flight, the fight and flight response. The fight response, right? Those people who, and maybe you're one of them, this probably at times where I go, who go full force, like we're going to do this. We're going to save the day. We're going to fix the problem. And you look around and you see these different types of evils in the world, and they're active and they're fighting and they're working against it. But again, here's a problem. It doesn't take stock of the fact that that evil lives inside you and it lives inside me. And some of the greatest social movements in our history have bred destructive after effects. The second response is a flight response. It's the pretend it doesn't exist. It's let's create an uh, oasis where we can just pretend that evil is not around us. And in this moment, the prayer that Jesus calls us to pray confronts both responses because it reminds us, first of all, that we are incapable on our own of dealing with evil. You can work as hard as you want at self-improvement, at becoming a better person. You might be here today and saying, man, I'm, I'm a good person, but I will tell you this. You will never be good enough to eradicate completely the evil that resides in you. This prayer forces us to recognize that we need someone else. And at the same time, for those who wish to pretend evil doesn't exist, it throws it in their face and says it does exist, but you can trust that there is one who has overcome it so you don't need to flee from it. You don't need to pretend it's not there. You need to go to the one who can deliver you. Do we regularly go to our Father and say, deliver us? Lead us not into temptation. Do we recognize our own frailty, our own weakness, and go to him on our knees? knowing that he is the only one who can change us. And yet we have this beautiful reality at Christmas time that celebrates the fact that there is a God who did come. There's a God who did deliver. That's what the cross, the manger, all of that represents a God who was not content to leave evil as the supreme power in our world, but who came to us in weakness and overcame evil in ways that we could not. As we finish off here, I'm going to invite the band to, to come back up. This beautiful prayer all the way from our Father to deliver us from evil is an invitation from Jesus. It's an invitation back to Genesis 1 and 2, back to the garden. It's an invitation to understand that we can only get there if we truly submit ourselves to him. We recognize that we are poor in spirit, that our righteousness is insufficient, that we are weak and frail, and we allow him to be our father to do that work for us. And so in a moment here, 
we're going to take communion together. As we grab the cracker, it is a reminder. It's a reminder of a God who forgave us by taking our debt upon himself. His body was broken so that we could be made whole. So we dip it into the wine or the grape juice. We're reminded of a God who overcame evil, who defeated it at the cross, who rose again so that death no longer has any power over us. It is an invitation to you and to I Go to the cross daily to once more walk with our Creator, to hear from Him, to speak to Him, and to know His heart. So I want to invite you to to stand, and I want to invite you to come and pray with me one last time together this prayer that Jesus has taught us. says this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.